Welcome to the Action for Happiness Carpool Podcast. We had such a fun time in the car with John Kabat-Zinn, we decided to run it back with the world's happiest man and accompany Mathieu Ricard from his hotel to the airport. I'm your host, Guy, and along with Anne and a new member, William, who introduced themselves at the start of the podcast. Mathieu gave up his scientific career to become a monk and moved to the Himalayas, where he resides to this day. He translated for the Dalai Lama for over a decade and has written many best-selling books on the subject of happiness and altruism. I remember, you know, initially when you opened and you said, if happiness is the goal of all goals, surely that deserves some investigation. <laughs> and knowing that in taking that breath, I'm, you know, pulling myself so into the it's present wonderful moment. wonderful that the breath is a, is a way to lead you there, but in fact, in real, to no, in truth, you don't even need the bread, you just need to reconnect uh, with this awareness. Experiencing that's the most primary fact that you can the ever have. The closest truth, the closest to truth we can ever be, right? Just that there well, is that's the deepest or... aspect of what you can be when you look it within your experience and within your mind, mm -hmm. you come to this pure awareness. And I remember someone... And I didn't know what to do, then yeah. this double rainbow came, I probably said, oh, then I got up and left. <laughs> His talk on happiness is one of the most viewed TED Talks and he's one of the most influential figures in mindfulness and meditation today. Action for Happiness is a movement of people committed to building a happier and more caring society. Visit the website for more details and hit subscribe to get updates on the latest podcasts and videos. We, we've tried this before with John Kabat-Zinn uh, uh, two months ago. Okay, wow. <laughs> Here's the... Anyway, we're in a very fancy car. That kind of like, you would like to have in Tibet instead of those old jeeps. <laughs> well, so, 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 so let me introduce you what first. Are, oh, yes, because I have no idea. Um, yes. You have, looks very nice person, but what? But we're not really very nice. So <laughs> no, don't, don't okay, be I'll find out by yeah. one in one hour and 25 minutes. So, so this and one of my best friends for so many years. Hello. So he, he he's my regular co-host on the Action for Happiness podcast. Oh, so that's Action for Happiness podcast. You're within Action for Happiness podcast. Yeah, yeah. so I got it. Now I'm, I, I like Action for Happiness, so there's no problem. Well, we like you very much too, so uh, <laughs> you give your introduction. Um, well, I actually yeah. found out about Action for Happiness through your TED Talk. Um, oh. So it was. Which was. Uh, it was. That must be for Action for Happiness. No, no, yeah, th that one. And then there was a link. So I searched your name on Google and then you did a talk at uh, Action for Happiness. Oh, yes, okay. And that's how we got involved with Action for Happiness. I thought, oh, what a great organization. You know, what a great idea. So. Mm -hmm. Nice. And we've been volunteering with them. Uh, okay, so it's fantastic. Years, and really, I remember when Richard Lyad uh, first uh, presented the idea to his audience, asking if he wanted to be some kind of spiritual patron and he said yes and it was just like an idea that was uh, I think at Zurich uh, power uh, the conference on the is altruism compatible with economics modern economic systems yeah that was I don't know 2000 and something that gave us uh, the book called uh, caring economics I think so so yes so that went a long way since then it's wonderful I think there are so many people were inspired by this movement. Yeah, well, Anne's also a math teacher at a college here, here in um, in London. And so not only uh, Anne introduced me to mindfulness many, many years ago, and you know he applies it in his classrooms with his students. Yes. Oh, and then. And then there's and then, Will. Will. And then there's person. Will. <laughs> so <laughs> we met through Cornwall. Yeah. So in hello. <laughs> so in university, um, I started to. Engaged with mindfulness and meditation. Yeah, I went on to my master's and explored it further. And how does mindfulness impact uh, authenticity? Authenticity. And, yep. I was okay. looking for how do you enable optimal coherence. I'm sorry. Oh, coherence. Yes. Mm, yep. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, then afterwards had uh, moved into coaching and positive psychology, mm -hmm. and then met up with Ian on here just um, a few years back. But um, I've been more involved in the project just a couple of weeks now. So he's a newbie to the group. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. 
So then what? Mindfulness driving to the airport. Not so yeah. <laughs> not getting too nervous. I'm going to miss the plane. What to do? Exactly. <laughs> what time do you fly? Oh, it's plenty of time. That's why I'm, I'm, oh, I'm very good. much smiling. So. <laughs> Chilled. <laughs> <laughs> and um, William actually studied in Madison, you know, out of, um, oh. with Dr. Ritchie. Oh, you did? Yeah, I attended the community there, um, learning uh, about the practice. And, you mean uh, at the Tergar community or the yeah. Healthy Mind community? Uh, Tergar. Mm, wonderful. And then the, the yeah. temple there as well, I think. Yeah, I was there in, what was it, November, I think. Hmm. Wow, Good. Yeah, amazing place. Yeah, it's amazing. Because they are this uh, center for Healthy Minds, I think that's the first time in the world that you have, I don't know, 200 or so researchers, mm. I don't know the exact number, which are not like, you know, fringe researcher, mainstream researcher, serious researcher, coached by someone who is one of the most rigorous and, uh, you know, nice scientists around. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, who have a personal, half of them at least have a personal practice, mostly in Buddhism through Terga, but or maybe other ones. So that gives a unique flavor to that whole place, you know. Uh, and of course, uh, I'm sure detractors might say, oh, oh then they will, that uh, sort of their spiritual or Buddhist leaning will influence their research. But that's stupid. Because you see, suppose you were a fan of sports and you will study the effect of sport on health. And say, oh, no, no, you can't study that because you are biased because you like sports. Yeah. Or you will want to know what's happened in the chess player's mind. And you really love chess. They say, no, no, you are not qualified as a scientist because you have a prejudice. So that's ridiculous. I mean, then you would need to research and study only thing that you just can't care anything about, <laughs> which will be highly boring. <laughs> so I think the main criteria is, is your research rigorous or not? Or do you have a hidden agenda? And even for Buddhist monks who participate, in the, this research like me as a guinea pig and collaborator I really don't have an agenda mm -hmm. of course I'm happy uh, when we the, the result of the you know, research uh, do show that uh, yes the mind training makes a difference not so much that I need to be convinced because I can see that in my innermost being but because I think to know that would be a good contribution to society to bring in education in, in every workplace and so forth but it's not because yeah Buddhism is right you know uh, once I remember I told the uh, thing about the research to a friend in Tibet you know who's very sort of strong Buddhist and he went yeah this is right <laughs> so of course <laughs> this is a bit anyway even you rejoice to that extent uh, in no way they should influence the direction of your research the way you um, in the way you sort of present and interpret the result so science is about a rigorous approach of reality investigation so that's I think uh, one of the great uh, I think quality of all the researchers with whom I collaborated for the last 20 years especially within the Mind and Life Institute is that absolute requirement for scientific rigor mm -hmm. and also for the scientific so the rigorous uh, um, authenticity from the part of the practitioner not to make it happen whatever yeah. when you do verbal reports or something. So that's a, so it's a wrong way of criticizing that say, oh, those people are Buddhist, therefore they are, are biased uh, in their research. I mean, you are much more likely to be biased by financial interest if you, mm -hmm. I don't know, do research in the pharmaceutical world or something. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why uh, I'm so, you know, feel very close to those scientists because I, I saw over the years how rigorous they are and then when something doesn't work I mean they, they say they even publish paper well we try something with meditators for that particular aspect nothing mm -hmm. happens special they are not different from other people in these particular skills so it happens also as, why should meditation bring you skills on each and everything in life yes yeah. you said that you know what stuck out to me is that Buddhism is a systematic approach training the mind and so that that really kind of well, stood actually, out to me. The, the, much deeper than that. Buddhism is about ways to identify the cause of suffering and remove the cause of suffering. So who could be against that? Mm. Now, it's not of saying that the universe has been created in this way and that way. Mm. No, we don't care. Anyway, we are here. So, but causes of suffering, what are they? Can they be remedied? Uh, can we go a little bit 
more deeper than just superficial cause of suffering. Mm -hmm. When the Buddha taught about the cause of suffering, we didn't need the Buddha to tell us that a headache or a toothache or, or losing someone who dies is, is a cause of suffering. Let's say, okay, we know that. Why, why would you become such a great teacher to tell us that? Well, the Buddha, importance of his teaching on suffering, he told us about cause of suffering that we uh, somehow believe are cause of happiness. You know, if we think that power, fame, wealth, uh, endless uh, succession of pleasant ex experiences, mm -hmm. all kinds of things that we pursue uh, are, uh, bring, will bring happiness and usually we, that makes us turn our back to happiness. So that's what the Buddha wanted to teach and even deeper, uh, the final ultimate cause of suffering is ignorance, is distortion of reality. So that's, for that we needed the Buddha, just not to tell us that, you know, uh, having a car crash is a cause of suffering. But the cost, so when I hear the word systematic approach of training the mind, when I'm, I think of, of mindfulness, and for me that the mindfulness, once I learned, really was a step-by-step -step almost, as far as the, the way that I felt I was learning more and experiencing what it was like to be in the present moment. So yes, of course, mindfulness is a key element in Buddhist practice. It's one indispensable tool. It's not the ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. uh, like there are so many uh, tools on the way, and each of them is precious. Each of them is indispensable. Uh, but you know, none of these tools constitute the only part and uh, the most essential part. The most essential part is about recognizing the cause of suffering, wisdom, and the means to get rid of it. And mindfulness is one of the powerful means. Now, of course, in the modern context, mindfulness became better known than anything else, mm -hmm. especially in the secular aspect, there's practically only that. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the history of uh, you know, the extraordinary spreading of mindfulness throughout the world, it's like kind of amazing. I mean, uh, two years ago, Time magazine did the mm -hmm. cover, the mindful revolution. And this is again and again, and this is amazing. And that's uh, really due to this uh, you know, groundbreaking vision of uh, uh, John Kabat-Zinn. Yeah. But if you remember the way it started, you know, he was a, a researcher and also a, he's a, a doctor, so he realized there was so much suffering in the uh, medical world, both from the patients and also the caregivers, that led to you could, besides the physical pain, there was a huge component of stress or mental unease. And so, 35 years ago, oh, I don't know exactly 35 years, it was, you know, meditation was not the kind of thing, especially in the U.S., that you say, okay, okay, let's bring that to a hospital and to school. You would look and say, hey, what are you doing here? It's not the place. But if you say mindfulness-based stress reduction, then people say, oh, oh that looks interesting. So it was a very wise way of approaching. And then there is this whole course, of course, that lasts usually a number of weeks, like eight weeks, uh, which uh, through the course is not just only be mindful in the present moment, it's also bring you know, physical posture, it brings the pro-social behavior of opening to each other in the group, uh, kind of kindness and so forth. So the course as such definitely incorporate all these other aspects. But then, you know, if you just do say, few days, two, three days of uh, initiation or introduction to mindfulness and you do that in a corporate world where you might think, oh, that might be a good way to make people work more hours without being too burnt out and deliver more and somehow they are happy even though they, are about, they were about to burn out because of the outer conditions at work. So that, of course, will be a completely wrong motivation to squeeze more out of people. And in the end, they will break all the more because you can't keep on squeezing people to the last drop. So even though, uh, from what I've seen, uh, by occasionally uh, you know, visiting some of those places and doing short meditations, it doesn't seem that it's people are taking it that direction. They more uh, use it to improve 
to actually diminish their own sort of stress and be more serene in what they do and to improve their judgment, having bigger perspective, mm. and to improve the quality of human relationship. Mm. So that's good. But still, you could imagine that this be instrumentalized, you know, just for uh, sort of cold efficiency. Yeah, yeah. So, in no means is to either launch another movement if I'm 72 years old and the last thing I want to do is that and the best thing I want to do is disappear in my hermitage. <laughs> but since I have been involved in places which typically might lead to those distortions, like teaching meditation in the morning, as John did on one year at the World Economic Forum, for instance, for two consecutive years I did that every morning and then this year I just come from there. I was asked actually to do participate in two workshops on the mystery of the mind mm -hmm. uh, with the you know, philosopher of the mind and the psychologist and neuroscientist and beginning with the 20 minutes uh, introduction to meditation. So in those contexts, I felt it was like a, uh, something essential as a lifeguard or measure <laughs> to right from the start speak of caring mindfulness. Not that if you practice mindfulness properly through the MBSR program, you will not naturally grow, uh, you know, loving kindness and compassion. But you know, in this much more, sometimes shorter version, you know, a little bit skinnier version of it, and uh, who knows the, what the people who will, will use it because there's so much literature available now. So I wanted to go back to what you said at the start. Um, you know, we think achievement, we think money, we think that those definitions of happiness and success, you know, mm -hmm. pleasure and working in education, I find, you know, when, when I ask young people, what, what are your goals? You know, what do you want to do when you finish this course and go on to university and what's, what's your ultimate aim? And very often it is money. That's, that's a, the, you know, a very yeah. usual response. And, and I suppose at that age, you know, words like altruism and compassion, it's not something that's common language. I'm sure at home, you know, their parents will say, oh, you know, they're very caring to their brothers and sisters and their friends will say the same thing. But when I talk about what's your ambition, it's very often I want to make as much money as possible. It seems yeah. like the competition, you know, like when you, the media shows that the ideal life is, is, you know, a successful movie star or rock star or sports but you know idolizing these figures it's 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 very hard to 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 draw their attention to other things and yeah. that's why i think a schools program Guy and i uh, we had talked the other day with our college about starting um a mindfulness in schools program at my college and we all we talk on top of just uh, you know the practical aspects of applying it to exam success or reducing stress and anxiety to to bring in the heartfulness, you know, the, the compassion element. I think that's very important. That's, that's, that's the message of action for happiness, isn't it? Yeah. Sort of to build a better society. Um, so, yeah, and, and uh, what suggestions would you give? Because, I mean, you know, their motivations for success and for money, you know, there's probably really good rooted, um, you know, motivations for that. But how do you align it properly so that they go about it in a way that's, you know, compassionate? Yeah, so you see, Yes, it's common. In the US, another thing that is very common among teenagers, I want to be famous. And then you ask him, how? You say, any, any way, <laughs> no matter, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so that's, uh, you know, famous, money. Uh, a little bit later, they, they probably also think in terms of power when they are like in their 20s. And then, you know, some of them think also this of endless repetition of pleasant experiences that's why they go to nightclub till five in the morning and stuff like that I guess but in the end you know, everyone collapses but they never, never mind so yes so I mean it's um, sort of uh, especially in teenagers you know this is an age of uh, curiosity uh, exploration and also opportunity uh, and the teenage period is now a bit longer than it used to be in the past and there was a precisely a panel recently that was conferred on the teenager's brain and uh, it seemed that that period has extended now from say almost 10 from 10 years old to almost uh, past 20 
in the way. So where there's a period of both vulnerability, potential, so great opportunities for also values, role models, finding a sense of direction and inspiration in life, but also for taking risks, experimenting wild things. And so because the, the kind of areas of the brain that are more moderating and, and uh, regulating those impulses are, are not there yet fully in place. There's a big rearrangement of the brain at, after at puberty. So now, it's very hard to head on convince them of something else. And often, sometimes it takes quite some time to realize, you know, the, when they are the 40s, the famous crisis of the 40s, when you, my life has been meaningless. And uh, I met someone who said, you know, when I was 20, I wanted to make a million dollars. Now I made five and I wasted 20 years of my life. So then you start re-questioning your life and saying, you know, where are my priorities, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Uh, of course, somehow you spend 20, life ex 20 years experimenting in that. So you may say, well, that's how the life works. But you may also say, well, maybe there are more optimal way to proceed mm. and sort of to be uh, exert your discernment earlier on because it's not that we want, no, it's most stupid idea would be to deprive yourself of what is really good in life. Okay, that would be absurd. The real question is, what is actually bringing you, will bring you some deep fulfillment? Yeah. Nobody contests that we should. Why should we prevent people from working towards happiness and well-being and fulfillment and sense of accomplishment? But if you're misled by your own sort of distortion, and you turn the, your back to happiness and, and run to other causes of suffering, then, of course, it's not a question of, uh, you know, this is bad what you do, but simply this is, you are contradicting your aspirations by your actions. I mean, your deeper aspirations. So now, the thing with money and looking, the way you look and power, is people say, okay, let's secure that. And then the human qualities, like, you know, love, friendship, flourishing when once I have money that's I will take care of that myself you know basically these are sort of outer condition that uh, I really want to be the best yeah. and then I'll relax and spend time with friends and all that so this is, this is em, em, embed, embodied in a wonderful um, sort of survey that a questionnaire that was given to people in the United States they asked him who do you admire more uh, and then they gave the name of a famous actor, uh, Hollywood actor, and the Dalai Lama. And I forgot who that actor was. And then everybody said, I admire more the Dalai Lama. Now, if you have a choice, and he was also very rich and so forth, who would you want to be if you can shoot? And then 90% said, I want to be that actor. The idea was that, well, you know, the Dalai Lama is wonderful, but he's not very rich, and uh, you know, the situation is not very good. You know, it, has no much freedom to move everywhere. So let's secure the outer aspect, be beautiful, rich, famous, and then I will take care of myself of becoming a good person at the Dalai Lama. But this is, uh, you know, this is an illusion because if you spend 20 years uh, becoming like this actor by, you know, pushing your way, elbowing your way, by kicking out competitors and showing off very artificial value all the time from morning till evening, and then your mind will somehow be, you know, sort of damaged by that. Yeah. And then you will not derive happiness. And then <laughs> there's no way you, uh, on top of that, could have the human quality of the Dalai Lama. So I think one of the best way for, because there's no point arguing with these uh, teenagers in a way, <laughs> they hate to be bullied into doing something else. Mm -hmm. But some of them might be swayed by now, some people do trust science and things like that. Yeah. There are many studies. If you look at Tim Kasser's study, for example, The High Price of Materialism, there's a book that came out of his study. For 20 years, he studied people, inclination to consumerism and materialism, what we call extrinsic values. You know, wealth, uh, you know, the wealth, your house, the beauty, whether your companion is beautiful or not, whether you send you wearing flashy clothes, 
you know, whether you have the latest model of the sport car or whatever. So all those extrinsic values. And then intrinsic values, you know, how you feel now, you know, sitting there and you feel happy when you look within or you feel a bit sad and oppressed and not quite, you know, lost. And then how is the quality of your relation with your real friends? Know, do you know us to really enjoy some quality time and all these kind of values? Now you take you know, 10,000 people, and what's what Tim Kasser and his, uh, and I think this, uh, his mentor, I forgot his first name, but it's something Ryan did. Uh, they questioned people on many things and they classified them. They took 25% more, more materialistically oriented and consumerism oriented and then the 25% less uh, consumeristic and more uh, valuing more this intrinsic value. And then they saw what, what are the other, how, what can you say about those people? They found out that the highly materialistic people basically were not so happy. They were pursuing hedonic happiness, that is the renewing of pleasurable experience, mm -hmm. but not eudaimonic happiness, yeah. which is, you know, deep sense of flourishing, of accomplishment, of well-being, but as a way of being, not just as the sensations and so forth. So, but even those uh, who were pursuing hedonic happiness, they were some, some, somehow failing to achieve that. Then they were, they had a lot of social context, contact, but less real friends. They can rely upon, they can ask advice, they can confide in, just yeah. for solace when they are in difficulty. They were less concerned about global issues, you know, poverty, environment, they didn't mm -hmm. care much, you know, me first. They were more obsessed with debt, interestingly. Uh, so basically, uh, no, this researcher said, okay, we are not uh, giving moral advice, but if you want to be happy, oh yes, they were less healthy because they were more inclined to drink, to smoke, to whatever, take up uh, you know, substances and things like that, and to live a unhealthy life. So they say, well, you know, what do you want? To be happy, <laughs> healthy, have good friends, enjoy life? Then you should know yes. that this is a fact. That has been studied of a large population. Yeah. Nothing to do with religion, with Buddhism, with spirituality. This is a fact of life. Yeah. So maybe you know you could present that in education as a simple way, not as a must-do or normative way, but just as a part of the yeah. knowledge, which is not often taught. Yeah. Exactly. I, 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 that's what exactly I was going to say. It's not often taught. It's something hugely neglected. When I look back at my own education. And we were all at school. Yeah, was was there any emphasis on no. words like compassion, altruism no. at school? And so you know, people have been doing it. I think Richard Lyad both tried to bring better way of education. Yeah. People like Richard Davidson, they're doing that in many schools in Madison now, bringing the kindness curriculum, yeah. which is a ten weeks curriculum. There are quite a few initiatives, yeah. um, but it's lot. It's very encouraging because it's picking up in Holland. There's a big movement in France. Now it's getting there. Uh, so it's happening, yeah. but as any cultural evolution change, it takes more time than just deciding, okay, uh, you know, from tomorrow I'm going to do physical exercise. Because now physical exercise is in the culture, it's yeah, not just yeah. few individuals deciding. So this takes, you know, five, ten years, whatever. So the quicker the better, yeah. but it's never instantaneous. Yeah. You're listening to the Action for Happiness Carpool Podcast. This episode we speak with Mathieu Ricard. His contribution to science, especially in how the brain reacts and changes through meditation, has been incredible and is changing lives all around the world. And a lot of the people that I work with as well, it's, you know, they've come there out of pain, out of necessity to create a change and, and evolve, or, you know, they're growing stagnant and they, they want more fulfillment, more of those qualities that you alluded to, to true happiness. How do you help people to really, uh, optimize that process so that way they can integrate it into their lifestyle. A lot of people might have good intentions initially but not really commit to the, the practices. You said there's lots of familiarity that's required. It's, it's a true lifestyle. How do you... So there are many ways, you know, education of course is the most uh, uh, 
is the by far the best way to proceed because everyone goes to education so if it becomes part of the education system in a meaningful way that will be by far the best then along with that of course part of education is parenting you know, role models and so forth mentoring that's part now besides that then you come to policy making you know policy uh, you know, make being favorable to this kind of approach and not sort of blocking them, especially in education. Oh no, no, this is not something that we should do in education, blah, blah, etc. Then there is a cultural change. What is the, you know, what seems to be the most uh, you know, appealing thing in society to, to, to do? Now people like to do physical exercise. They like to go to natural places because they have been deprived of contact with nature and so forth. So not everyone can afford it, etc., etc. But it's cultural change, and then there are what we would call sort of ideas, the power of ideas. So you know, people like me, the question you ask is exactly the question that was asked. I remember some years ago, uh, I was in Hong Kong, and people were asking exactly the, the same question, sometimes even in a more dramatic way. Mm. Would you give me a reason why I should? Made alive, for instance, I heard that from a 20 years old. So then, you know, in the world of ID, that what sort of uh, inspired me or decided me to try with my modest capacity to gather information, knowledge, and put it together and write books like, you know, the happiness and altruism and the art of meditation and all those books. Not just to you know try to become a writer or a successful author or make a living out of it, but simply because to what can I do to answer those questions? And you know, and just not while driving with friends in a car, which is always nice, but you know, reaching a slightly greater number of people, and it might have reached few people. Look, again, yesterday, once or twice, someone. That's known here much in England, but came to me and said, You know, the happiness book made a big difference in my life. So you feel a little bit, Oh, why? How? Yeah. You know, someone you don't know and suddenly tells you you have been important in his life. That seems a bit strange at first sight, but well, that's the power of ideas. And not that I, I didn't invent anything at all, I just gathered all this wisdom and knowledge and put it together mm -hmm. in a way that could be understood. So all those ways together, you know, chiefly education. And, and then societal change through evolution of culture, and then contribution of ideas to create those tipping points to a, a culture that is not so much materialistic and so forth. So you know, there are many ways, and that's how slowly culture change. And uh, we need more videos like yours on your TED Talk on YouTube because that was one way that touched me. I remember, you know, initially when you opened and you said. If happiness is the goal of all goals, surely that deserves some investigation. <laughs> if what yes. we do, you know, mm. and we, we've, Guy and I, uh, yeah, we've been friends with say. No, typically when people say I want to be rich, because they mean that would make me happy. Yes, yes. So that's what, that's what the, they mean that. Yeah. They don't want Ultimately, to be uh, yeah. money because they say, oh, that's the best that's way to mean. find happiness. Yeah. Uh, that, but they don't, nobody thinks it's just for the sake of money. So, the, some people say, well, there are many things that are more important for, than money, but you need money to get them. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of their reasoning, yeah. okay? Uh, I'll be happy if I go every summer to the Bahamas. I'll be happy if I have a very nice car, and beautiful house, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So that I need money. Yeah. Uh, and this gives me some sense of confidence, of uh, less vulnerability. I can achieve what I want because I want money can buy me my way in many ways so all that is to sort of be happy yeah. so if you can show that there's nothing wrong with money that can is an instrument that can be used for good or for bad for, for building or for destroying yeah. but money itself and even the power that money gives is absolutely no guarantee of happiness it doesn't lie there uh, you can be the happy poor or the others or the, or the depressed rich so there's no it's obvious. So it's just to help people reassess 
okay, yes, we want to be happy. Of course, we don't want to suffer. So now, sit down. What is the best way to achieve that? Nothing wrong with money, nothing wrong with this, nothing wrong with that, but in itself, is it going to bring happiness? No. So now, does in itself inner freedom, compassion, you know, resilience, inner peace, will that bring happiness? Well, the answer is yes, they will contribute big way to happiness. So you just have to, you know, be sensible. And that's why you can explain that in books, as I've tried to do, and others have done it better than me. So I think this is something so indispensable, you know, for a 20 years old or whatever, yeah. to sense a sense of direction, what really matters in life. Of course, they know what they don't want life to be like, yeah. boring and meaningless and sort of shrunk and fragmented, but they also sometimes don't want what they want their life to be. Yeah. And that's where they start, you know, fantasizing about things that we know and no guarantee for happiness, even though there's nothing wrong with being rich, powerful and all that, because we can use it for a good purpose. But that's not in itself a guarantee for happiness. I mean, Richard Lyad in his book, you know, The New Science of Happiness, he clearly says that you can't expect for some GDP to be the direct cause of happiness. Because I know to be a byproduct of, of, of GDP. The happiness has its own criteria of, of success that need to be pursued by themselves, not as byproducts. So, similarly in life, you can't expect that happiness will be a byproduct of money, will be a byproduct of power, will be a byproduct of you know, endless pursuit of pleasant sensations. No, happiness has different characteristics that could be cultivated as skills in and of themselves. Mm. So more inner freedom, not to be the slave of your thoughts. More benevolence, not to be deadly selfish from morning to evening. Uh, more inner peace, that you know you are not destabilized by anything, by uh, like the smallest thing, like smallest criticism will make you upset or angry or depressed, that the smallest sort of praise will make you perfect with mm. arrogance. So you become so vulnerable. So inner freedom and inner peace is not to be vulnerable to that. So all that can be cultivated. Those are skills. Neuroscientists will confirm that. Yeah. So just looking well, for happiness in the right place where it is and then pursue the means to achieve it. And I have, we've been having hour long conversations since we were in our you know, late teens, you know, because, you know, a lot of questions we didn't know the answers to, but we, we were keen on talking about them and just exploring them. Yeah. And, you know, Anne introduced me back then to De Descartes. Uh, yes, I'm not sure. So. And so, so, so when you Best guys were, for happiness. When no. you guys were talking about him the other night, it, you know, we were just kind of tapping each other on the leg, just thinking, you know, wow, you know, you know, something that, you know, for the past 20 something years we've been talking about. You know, my father wrote a book, which I didn't read, by the way, called Descartes, Useless and Uncertain. Uh, well, I don't know, but uh, I'm not so... I mean, I, I prefer much more the you know, the Greek philosopher, like the Epictetus, Epictetus and Seneca. But what if we... No, I just read a sentence because I have a friend with a Swiss handicap philosopher, and yeah. he did a book called Three Friends in Quest of Wisdom. That's going to be in English soon. That was, was in 2016. The all year long, it was number one bestseller in non-fiction. Yeah. So he often quotes, like Epictetus, and we did, we met recently again a few days ago, about the fact that when we are upset uh, because someone treats us badly or said something terrible, in fact, you know, even those philosopher of the classical. Greek and Roman philosopher, they really see that it is purely the way you translate it into misery. That, that in fact, that's up to you. To, if someone you know, insults you, well, the insult itself cannot harm you. It's the way you interpret it, and that you don't have a choice not to be insulted. Uh, you don't have a choice when you have uh, you know bullies like uh, some of those politicians or, or people. But you certainly, so that's out of your control. Yeah. 
So I just read it, this book that came out a few years ago called Hassholes. Yeah. <laughs> about so people, you know, you can change those guys. Yeah. <laughs> but you can certainly uh, be less, more or less affected. Not in the way that you submissive and resignation, but simply free. Yeah, your interpretation of those words, if you, you know, your example about the boat, and uh, when you when you wake it up and you realize the boat's empty. Yeah, and also, yes, of course. Oh, then, then you, why should you be upset? That shows that how important it is when your ego is targeted. But yeah. I'm not thinking about, you know, people being not nice to you. Yeah, yeah. The Buddha once was insulted by someone, mm -hmm. and he said, to the guy, once you have been given something, someone gives you, and you don't take it, to whom that thing belo uh, mm. belongs? Yeah. Well, the guy said, well, to the person who is trying to give it. Yeah. Say, well, <laughs> if I don't take your insults, it yeah. stay with you. Nice. Yeah. And so like that. But the, the Descartes, sorry, I'm just going, yeah. I really wanted to finish this point. Yes. So you said the use, useless, but... What it did it, no, I don't know why, why he said that. But. Well, but it allowed us to have that thought experiment from a young age. Well, you know, what if this was all an illusion? What if there was an evil demon tricking us to think that this whole experience was mm. real? So, I mean, that sounds absurd to a lot of people. Yeah? Of course this is real. I can touch my arm and I can feel my body. You know, this, this is reality. There is nothing else but this. Yes. But we were able to explore. What if, you know, we were to wake up tomorrow and be a brain in a jar somewhere? Yeah, well, you would not see anything. Yeah, or not see anything, but because we were, we had these conversations and we talked about it. When we got into to mindfulness, and you know, reading Eckhart Tolle and reading John Kabat-Zinn, mm -hmm. and you know, what, where is this space when we're in the present moment, when we're not yes. thinking about the past and we're not thinking in the future, and you know, doing this mindfulness practice over the five years, you start to taste just very oh, this present moment, mm -hmm. and. And I guess the idea that, you know, you're the book we call Beyond the Self, right? Yes. You guys touched upon it, how, and another subject we talk about is the self being an illusion. Convenient illusion, yes. A convenient illusion. You know, we, we just wanted you to, to, I guess, speak on that a bit, because, you know, the idea of the self being illusion, again, is a very weird and wild well, concept. But no, it's not weird. I mean, this... Well, to, <laughs> when I try and describe it, at least to my friends, it's like, you know, no, what no, are you no, smoking? Because, uh, there's a self. Who said there's no self? Um, but as the ego. The no, no, way, I know, I know. Yeah. But how does it exist? Is it as, as Descartes says, an autonomous, permanent, unitary entity? We don't think that unless we have a split personality and multiple personality disorder, we don't have 16 selves. Okay, yeah. One, we think this me. And that me is unhappy or happy or crossed or joyful or upset or whatever, but we think it as one, yes, basically. And that's convenient because we, we could not work with 16 different personalities, even though we change more than 16 ways in a day in terms of our mood and emotions. So, so it's just a simply a, a unifying concept that we attach to the stream of our experience, and that's fine. No, there is the you can distinguish three things: the I. Okay, yeah. I exist. I wake up. I'm cold. I'm hungry. I'm whatever. Good. There's nothing wrong with that. I am alive. Then there is the the person. Person is the history of your stream of consciousness. Of mm -hmm. course, this is not the same as yours, and there's no content that this is some form of existence as a dynamic stream of experience with the continuity. Yes. It's not interrupted, it's not the same as yours, okay, that's fine. Now, the self or the ego is adding something to that, either to intuition or to a philosophical stance, like Descartes, or to intuition that I have the same that this little boy that I was, and my mother showed me the photo. So, that, okay. I label that Matthew, and this, why not? You can give a name to something, just as you give a name to a house, doesn't make the house become 
what the name is. If you say you are little paradise, well, that's still uh, you know whatever house it is. <laughs> it doesn't become a paradise for that. But but that's the way you, you when the postman comes, he, he delivers the letter to little paradise, and everyone understands where is little paradise. So that's okay. But now if you start to think that you know it's, it has to be treated like a paradise, <laughs> or that self that is separate autonomous it becomes so important because it would exist as a separate entity then this is quite a different because you will relate to that in a very polarized way trying to please it or to protect it and then a lot of uh, chain reaction will come out of that attraction repulsion anger hatred desire pride jealousy all that is revolves around this idea so now if if it was there then why not protecting it and pleasing it? But the, what the Buddhist uh, analytical approach contains is that if you try to find it, you don't find such unitary uh, autonomous entity. You don't, don't find it, neither in the body nor in the consciousness. It's a concept which is fine. It's a label attached to that stream. There's no problem with that. It's only a problem when you start to reify it and then overreact according to that reification. So then it becomes a cause of suffering. And only because of that it's useful to deconstruct it. It's not by just philosophical curiosity. If it had no consequence in terms of suffering, then who cares if you believe that you have this little diamond in the middle of your heart as me. Okay, so that's the only reason. And then, you know, if you follow that analysis, it's clear that you cannot find such entity. Yeah. So that's all. So by freeing up from that identity, it's, it's the analysis that actually creates the, that, uh, you know, letting go of that attachment? Yeah, so people think it, you become like a vegetable, you have no more, no, you are nobody. But actually, <laughs> the real re uh, consequences of that is freedom, yeah. not being nobody and mm -hmm. a kind of sort of, you know, empty ghost sort of you become like a ghost town yeah. so actually it's complete freedom because yeah. you are not entangled in this wrong belief now you have been living with this uh, imposture like someone who has been you know uh, impersonifying you and using your credit card for 10 years and suddenly you found out it was an imposture yeah. so that's why you if it's an imposture you need to unmask it if it's not then fine if it's your credit card please use it so that's the only reason why the, this uh, investigation has value, is because it decreases the cause of suffering. And the I think, therefore I am, which stood true for us for so many years. And then, you know, when we realize through mindfulness, it's like, even when you're not thinking, you are, am more than, in fact, you've, well, you've ever yes. are, right? First of all, yes, there's this very deep experiential sort of uh, acknowledgement that this basic experience, you can call it I am, or mm -hmm. maybe if it's not the I actually, sheer experience. The, the, the am, yeah, the am. The am, yes, mm -hmm. sheer experience. There's pure awareness. Yes, I am experiencing. That's the most primary fact that you can the ever have. Truth, the closest to truth we can ever be, right? Just that there well, is consciousness. Well, that's the deepest or... aspect of what you can be when you look it within your experience and within your mind. Mm -hmm. You come to this pure awareness unconditioned, not filled with mental construct, not sort of dualistic subject-object, mm -hmm. doesn't think I am, it just thinks, okay, this is pure direct experience. Mm -hmm. Now from there, start you know, making mental construct, self and others, and uh, I and the rest of the world, and then emotion, thought, etc. But these all secondary sort of developments of construct out of this pure awareness. Pure awareness is, there's no such thing as discursive reasoning, I think like, I, therefore I am. It's just pure being, but not being as an entity. Right. Pure experience, Yes. And pure awareness. Mm -hmm. So that's not something, that's a pure experience. Yeah. So that's uh, the Buddhist approach at least. How do you engage in that? How do you get to that experience? Well, that's, uh, familiarization because uh, if you ask someone what's the nature of your mind and they say what what are you talking about so you need to look but isn't it that moment when you 
you're taking in a breath and you're you're trying to feel the sensation that yes, you are yes, being present. Yes, there's something of that is there. It's always there, by the way, but, yeah, but you wrong, don't. Right. So you might have glimpses and insight, uh, but they're a little bit like the sky you see through the eye of a needle. Yeah. It's still small. It's narrow. Uh, it's not very deep. But, but for many it, people, that is, initial just yeah, seeing the light for the first like time the, could the, be the freshness of the present moment. Yeah. Is actually connecting with something, and then try to recognize it beneath the, the you know the weird pool of thoughts. Yeah. So it depends, you know, how clear, vivid, obvious, uh, lasting <laughs> that recognition is. Will it last even though you are taken, you are driving the car in the traffic jam, you still see the sky of that pure awareness or yeah. is it obscured by the clouds, the cars, the this and that? Because even we do all that, beneath the clouds there's still a blue sky. It's never changed, yeah. but we lost track of it. But the ability to on demand like my, my father passed away last month and you know when I have these really sad thoughts it's you know taking a breath and then everything's okay yes so in that moment <clears throat> but it's a tool that I didn't have before wonderful was there so many you know <laughs> that, that in that moment of pain I can say ah now breath and knowing that in taking that breath I'm you know pulling myself so into the it's present wonderful moment that it's, the breath is a <clears throat> is a way to lead you there but in fact in real to in truth, you don't even need the bread, you just need to reconnect uh, with this awareness. Mm -hmm. And then, bread is a convenient way, maybe, to just yeah. open, calm and open. Mm -hmm. But if you are more familiar with the pure awareness, yeah, you can take a deep breath, but it's not, it's just a, a, a lead to that. Yes. So, breathing in itself is just matter. It's just quite convenient to stay alive of course and can I say because like as we've been in the car like my brain's like oh my god there's Matthew Ricard to my left <laughs> so I'm trying to like, be you know present and don't let that thought distract me and I keep so coming back to the conversation breathe, yeah. forget about that <laughs> forget about irrelevant things you know we actually met and last you know the last time you spoke and we went down together to the um, meditation at Trafalgar Square oh yes we were, we were part of that in that rain thing which was saved by the rainbow the beautiful rainbow I was, I was, I was looking for one today I was like <laughs> Might become two out of two, maybe like. I yeah, told you the other day. Now you told me something. Yes. I mentioned that you know, I didn't know how to stop that meditation because there was no loudspeaker and then nobody, everybody was doing home and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, I was soaked in the water because they put the plastic, but it was like this, and yes. all the water gathered in the plastic. Yes. And I remember someone. I didn't know what to do. Then yeah. this double rainbow came. I probably said, "Oh!" So I got up and left. <laughs> because some people started saying "Om," oh, and I remember you went, "Oh, this is new." <laughs> no, there's nothing I could say because yeah. nobody could hear. I was not supposed to talk. And remember, if you would like to help create a kinder and happier world, please get involved with Action for Happiness. You can join thousands of others who are spreading a bit more happiness in their homes, workplaces, schools, and local communities. Don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with all our content. For more conversations, visit actionforhappiness.org forward slash podcasts. Join the movement, be the change.